What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khader. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Vishan Chakrabarti. He is a licensed architect and the founder of the Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, a design studio based in New York City. He uh, appears on CBS, MSNBC, and NPR. Previously, he's held senior roles at a diverse array of organizations, from shop architects to the New York City Department of City Planning. Uh, he is currently on leave as the Dean of the College of Environmental Design at the University of California at Berkeley, where he received his master's degree in architecture. He's an alum of MIT and spoke at one of my graduation events uh, when I was a senior there. With his ample spare time, he serves on the boards of the Architectural League of New York and the Regional Planning Association. We'll be talking about his firm's renovation of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, originally designed by IMP. And more broadly, we'll talk about how you go about improving the work of a legendary architect. A lot happened to the original building over the course of its history, in part because it was dysfunctional, in part because things like energy code came along and people had to put like this film on the building because of the amount of heat gain that the pyramid was getting. And then, of course, the other thing is that late postmodern pay platonic geometry is a closed geometry. I mean, this is this gets into like, well, you're sitting in Michael Graves' house, so I think it's okay. <laughs> it's a big box. <laughs> I mean, look, that was a language that was about these closed platonic forms, mm -hmm. right? Triangle, circle, square, and that each of them was completely self-defined mm -hmm. and about themselves as, as these little objects. And therefore not terribly open to the community. You know, even the big glass pyramid, it's it's mm -hmm. kind of a little wonky how he designed the front entrance and things, again, got changed over time. It doesn't and, seem like the front entrance. The way you park, you uh, walk three quarters of a circle around to get to the entrance. Well, the other thing that's really fascinating when you look at the history is Pei designed the building for a different site, and then the site moved. And they basically transplanted the same design to the new site which is why the plaza never feels right because mm -hmm. the plaza was designed as an outdoor room that was flanked by two buildings in the mm -hmm. original site plan. But when the site moved, 
they moved the plaza, they moved the building, but there were no flanking buildings. And so it never got that sense of an outdoor room. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the things that we're trying to bring back with the new design. And the other thing about all of this, and you can probably tell the site visit, the understanding, the history, is we're a deeply fact-based firm that needs, we have a process that we call place needs and connection where, you know, Diana Angris used to say that you have to read a place before you write it. I'm sure she still does. And so, you know, understanding the full breadth of the history, the community narrative, what is this place Mm -hmm. for this place before you start setting pen to paper, then you understand needs. What are the community's current and future needs of the place? What are the client's needs? What are the budgetary needs, the schedule needs? And then how, with that understanding of place and needs, do you form emotional and spiritual connection with new architecture? Mm-hmm. And out of that forms our sort of motto, which is place needs connection, that, are, that places like Cleveland, places like Detroit, especially because of the automobile, because of racial segregation, because of environmental injustices, were carved up and purposefully made to be disconnected. You know, the highway that separates you from that community, right? And so we start as archaeologists and end as seamstresses, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, we start in a deep, deep dive into what a place is, and try to unearth all of these facts. Oh my God, the building was designed for a different site, right? That's like, unreal. We try to unearth all of these things like an archeologist would. And then understand that with the architecture, it's an act of sewing. We are reconnecting, we are seamstresses, right? And so we then take that archeological knowledge and say, okay, how do we sew this quilt back together again? We now, we found all these pieces. Mm-hmm. How does our piece form like the missing link in the jigsaw puzzle? You know, sorry, I'm mixing all these metaphors, but then you sew the quilt together. And I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier, that this is, I think, an approach that is new and different and much more to me it is the exact opposite of a bilbao right which is so purposefully creating a segregated object that is instagram ready Mm -hmm. and and you know look i'm not trying to diss that era it's just a different era you know it's the late 20th century and we are now well into the 21st century we're no longer in that post-Cold War rational exuberance. We are in the post-Katrina, post-recession, hopefully soon post-COVID era where architecture and urbanism just plays a different role in our society than simply creating objects and hoping for some economic ripple effect. I think in particular what you're describing is this this difference in perception of what an architect or designer's role is. And I think for previous generations is the idea that a successful architect was the amazing soloist that everyone would listen to. And now it feels much more like that's a very lame approach. And it's actually much more about the architect being conductor or organizer or a coach of many different things, but that they're not the star themselves. It's actually the team or the orchestra that's the star. And the thing is, that piece is maybe it's a newer approach, but we should fair is fair. 
there's a whole lineage in modern architecture. So there's this lineage that goes from Frank Lloyd Wright to Corb to Gary and so forth of that soloist idea. But it's never been true, first of all. I mean, like, right, it's just never been true. But second of all, there's a whole other Team 10, Alto, Aldo Van Eyck, Habrakan, that you now see a like reemerge again in this world of Tatiana Bilbao, of Arvena, of Doshi. And, you know, in the United States, we have to play a different game with this. How one does it is very different than these other countries that you spoke to Dahlia and others about, right? But it is possible. And so I'm excited about this. I mean, so I think it's, I think it is important to say that, yes, it is a sort of, newer generation of architecture firms that are approaching communities and cities this way, but it's well embedded in a DNA that was the humanist strand of modernism. Yeah. And I think that I have a feeling that a newer generation of architects will vote with their skills and no longer decide that working for a architect firm where the one is the one that stands above everyone else and takes praise for a team's work. They don't have to work there. You don't have to work in a situation that perpetuates that idea. So I hope there are many, many more people than say my generation <laughs> that stood out and said like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Just say, I'm not going to vote for someone or I'm not going to work at a firm where their values don't align with mine. Yeah, look, I'm a big believer in individual choice and people should vote with their feet and do mm-hmm. work where they want to work and people have different kind of exigencies in terms of how they work and where they work. But I know on our team, you know, we're about 30 people and the size is great because we're a community. We know each other and trust each other. And, you know, from the outset, we had this thing on our website, what we do and what we don't do. And we set apart this kind of stuff that we don't really feel that we should be. And that's not a holier than now thing. It's just Mm -hmm. like what we don't do. And I think that's attracted a lot of people to our office. I think your generation is looking to our generation and saying, okay, you know, put up or shut up, you know, tell me how you're really different, which is, look, I want to be really honest about this. This is not an easy conversation. We still live in a capitalist paradigm, Mm -hmm. right? I've got to pay everyone. I've got to, you know, we have good benefits. Those are expensive, right? I've got to make a living. So for instance, we work with developers who are well-intentioned. Some people think you shouldn't work for developers at all. I think that is maybe not the right line to draw on the sand. Mm -hmm. I would rather work for an enlightened developer than work for a dictator. And so, you know, (laughs) when you see people show up in images with Bolsonaro or whatever, I mean, I always find that stuff both predictable and shocking, if if that makes any sense. Welcome to 2021, right? Yeah. So look, we each have our lines and our boundary conditions. Some people have no lines or no boundary conditions whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I think for your generation... You know, people are asking this question, like, are we really the second oldest profession in the world? Will we really do anyone for anything? You mean like a constitution, right? That's the yeah, I mean, I mean, we had it from the outset six years ago in our kind of firm manifesto that we would never design correctional facilities. Mm-hmm. That's now obviously in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd and so many others. 
become a huge deal in the architecture profession. You know, it's interesting, like if you've been following New York politics, there's this whole thing about closing Rikers Island. Mm-hmm. And if you close Rikers, there are people who say, just don't build any more prisons. There are other people who say, look, you need some community-based jails, mm-hmm. right? But the problem is you look at the design standards, which I did, and it's like you still have to have an exposed stainless steel toilet in the center of the cell so the guard can see you. This is not true in many, many countries. And this stripping people, and especially people of color, of basic human dignity, and the fact that an architect draws those things. Mm-hmm. And specifies the toilet. Right, and specifies the toilet, right? Like, draws the sight lines for the guard. Okay, if that's what you want to do, that's your prerogative. But as you say... The question for young people isn't just architects. That term, I think, is a dying term, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not just whether you work for, like, world-famous architects or not. What do you do all day? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, what do you do all day? Now, look, that doesn't mean that you sit in the office and write academic treatises all day. Like, architecture is hard, and you still have to learn how to draw a toilet partition, and you need to understand ADA, and you need to, you know, like there are these things that you need to learn if you're going to be an architect, which is this thing that I say a 28-year-old is an apprentice. Mm-hmm. And that's not a pejorative. That shouldn't be an insult, mm-hmm. you know? But I think some people do take it as a pejorative, unfortunately. It's hard work, but what does it work towards? And I do think people have to make those judgments for themselves. And it's hard in a world of like, you know, I was dean at Berkeley for a year and a half and 41% of our undergraduate architecture students are first generation college students, a third are underrepresented minority. You know, people have student loans mm-hmm. and they have to pay off. This is why I worked very hard to get scholarships to alleviate student loan debt because loans hamstrung to end up being a real problem for young graduates who have to go work in corporate architecture to pay off their student loans. I worked in corporate architecture to pay off student loans. And, you know, the academy needs to do a lot more to deal with the debt crisis Mm -hmm. in terms of this. So, yeah, I mean, yes, people need to think about their choices, You know, and yes, we all have constraints and exigencies on our choices, right? But even within that context, there's latitude. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the freedom that you had in terms of responding to the brief that the owners gave. So in this context, could you talk through what specifically the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was looking to accomplish in this renovation? And then the major scope elements that you delivered in response to that? You know, we're still under a non-disclosure agreement. So if there's a limited amount, I want to say, but there's an established mm-hmm. site. There's an established site that is roughly to the south along the lake. Of uh, It's the big lawn directly adjacent to the Pay Building. Mm-hmm. That lawn sits between the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Great Lakes Science Center, mm-hmm. which also is kind of an object building. It has this old planetarium-like form that's an IMAX theater now. And so sites there... And they needed a number of things, a new lobby, a multi-purpose facility, some debate about performance spaces, new office space, and things that alleviated pressure in the existing building. So when you talk about the freedom we had from the brief, so to me, design freedom and architectural freedom is a great 
topic and we don't talk enough about it. So I'm glad you used that word because to me it is very different than artistic freedom, mm-hmm. right? I'm a writer. I like to draw. What you do as an artist uh, and the freedom you have as an artist is very different than the freedoms you have as an architect. Design, of course, requires freedom and free will. At the same time, you know, famously, it is not the sculpting of an object in space. Mm-hmm. Because and of building codes, ADA codes, practicality costs. So back to that place needs connection thing. Mm-hmm. So if connection is the manifestation of freedom, that freedom is leavened with the qualities of place. Mm-hmm. And the details of need and need includes, again, community needs, client needs, code, you know, ADA, all of these things that say, you know, your freedom is constrained, right, by the fact that we have a set of needs. And Mm -hmm. so therefore, it is not just a pure sculpture in space. And so your challenge is to make something, use your freedom, use your talent to create something that is connective, leavened by place and needs. So for example, I have had good healthy arguments with Pritzker laureate friends who say that they are tired of working in the United States and in the West more generally, right? And, you know, like to go off and work in the United Arab Emirates or in China because they have freedom. They have freedom to design in a way that you don't hear. To which I respond, what kind of colonialist bullshit is that? Yes. This is core of Algiers all over again. You know, if you look at the history of that plan, of Plan Obus, and there's several versions of it, Corb was a big fan of the colonial project. He loved the French colonial project. He thought it would educate the Arab. Uh, there's he quotes to that effect. And it is this notion that if you go to these other places that you can experiment, right? As if the rest of the world is somehow the laboratory mm-hmm. for your ideas, because somehow in the Western world, we become smart enough to not let people build things that are either unsafe or don't allow equal access for wheelchairs or don't really respond to community needs or, you know, whatever list of constraints that people find problematic. This is a debate that we don't have enough of in architecture circles. And this is why we're working in the Rust Belt in what like Mm -hmm. a lot of people call flyover country. I always found that incredibly I find flyover country as offensive as I find the term heartland, which implies that we on the coasts are heartless. But, you know, the problems we have in our politics today, the rise of fascism all over the world, architects get to decide whether we're going to be part of the solution or part of the problem. Yes. And to me, we're part of the problem if we go serve fascists in other places because they let us, quote, experiment. Mm-hmm. Right? Or we work in the hurly-burly of democracy. And in the hurly-burly of democracy, you know, your show is called American Building. You know, building in this country is getting more and more complicated for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, our project at Princeton, Princeton is in the middle of an extraordinary reconceiving of itself, of a place that was a kind of epicenter of white privilege. 
and turning into this place that is really trying to guide its resources to become a place that fosters equity and really questions a lot of racial practices, right? And it's very palpable when you're with Princeton to understand that this transformation is taking place. The college we're designing is the replacement college for the college that was named after Woodrow Wilson, now called okay. First College, right? That is, you know, is now going to be named after Melody Hobson, one of the most prominent African-American mm-hmm. businesswomen and alumni from Princeton. And so this is a sea change. Mm-hmm. And architects get to decide whether they want to be part of that sea change, leaders in that sea change, or taking up the rear guard. Right. And longing for the late 1990s. That's the decision before us, you know, and I think that the firms that are succeeding are the ones that are taking on. And it's not like we're virtue signaling. We've got the flag. It's incredibly hard. Everything about it's incredibly hard. Because you're, again, you're still engaging capitalism. You're still engaging a lot of rules that were written before we got here. But that's the choice. I think what you're describing is this idea that architects that choose to focus more on themselves than the people around them essentially draw this caricature of this villainous, arrogant person or this arrogant actor that doesn't necessarily imagine that their work has to be perceived in the context of something else. It's this thing that is delivered upon people. And I think that there is a big generational difference that is going to come very soon now that millennials and Gen Z are half the U.S. population. And I think pretty soon will be half of the U.S. electorate as well. So, yeah, I think we'll look forward to that change. <laughs> I mean, you know, the way you phrase that to me raises this question of what is the role of the self? What is mm-hmm. the role of the individual? Because I believe that, you know, architecture is not a science. It is both art and science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you read Bucky Fuller or you look, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has completely invaded my dreams. I dream about the project. I wake up in the middle of the night and I send a sketch to the team at four in the morning. And it's not a vocation. It's your calling then if that's what happens. Well, sure. But my point, though, is that there's still in everything we've said, I'm not trying to obviate the role of design of an individual's kind of agency in design and as a firm leader someone who sure there is my imprimatur on these things right Mm -hmm. i'm not trying to deny that or deny the strength of the power of that you know people hire us with that expectation Mm -hmm. it's how that imprimatur it's how heavily it's manifest is Mm -hmm. it bold 48 point type or can it sit there as you know 12 point and kind of just live on the strength of the Mm -hmm. substance of the words rather than the size of the font Mm -hmm. and does it provide room you know one of the first decisions i made was to not put my name on the front door and to call the firm something that is somewhat generic a Mm -hmm. practice of architecture and urbanism but substantively meaningful because that's what we are we are a practice and we are focused on architecture and urbanism Mm-hmm. And, and it shortens to POW, which is fun because it's about the desire for impact, <laughs> right? And, you know, I'm not trying to take away that role of someone who wants to sketch and furtively model mm-hmm. and, 
it's not some mechanistic thing that can just be taken over by robots someday. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's all about the individual whose name is on the front door. Mm -hmm. There's just a nuance in there that is hard sometimes to, it's impossible to quantify and hard to qualify. I think this might be an appropriate point to mention to our listeners that one of our upcoming guests in season two is architect Pascal Sablon of AtJ Associates. So uh, Pascal is also the founder of Beyond the Built Environment and her work on social justice and design was one of the reasons that she was awarded the 2021 Whitney Young Jr. Award by the AIA. So subscribe to the American Building Podcast so you don't miss any of the spectacular episodes like this one or the one coming up with Pascal. So I was a tour guide at MIT and I had the opportunity to give a tour of the campus to the family of IMP uh, because his, wow. uh, one of his family members was actually uh, my classmate. So siblings of IMP extended family members of a large group. And I believe because I was a course for architecture undergrad, I was the guy that was selected to take them around. So during the course of the project, you've become much more familiar with the legacy of IMP and him as a person. So what would you say are your strongest impressions of him now at this point in your design process? Well, so first of all, I have an obsession with pay that dates back well before winning this building, which I uh-huh, think okay. showed up in our response to the raw call. My wife and I, our first apartment was in Kipps Bay Towers, which is a Got pay it. project. Mm-hmm. And this relates back to what I was talking about earlier in my own experience and the experience of many others who are not part of the dominant culture. Um, Harry Cobb was a friend of mine, and I used to ask him about this, and it was a different generation, so I think it was a little harder to talk about. But, you know, Pei famously, Pei did his urban planning work. You know, he worked as the house architect in the development firm for Bill Zeckendorf. Mm-hmm. I would have to imagine that when Pei was coming of age and coming out of Cambridge, that he was not easily accepted amongst white shoe architecture firms as their next, you know, great designer. Uh And usually, I mean, you know, even a place like SOM, you know, you had partners like Imran Khan, but they were structural engineers. Like Mm -hmm. it was never, you know, there was always this notion that design was meant for the blue bloods. Mm-hmm. Right. And I am pay might have been a blue blood in the Chinese context, but not mm-hmm. in the American context. So what are my impressions of pay that he was an extraordinarily agile, nimble thinker that brought to the rigidities of modernism, a certain sense of whimsy along with order and the rock hall, which is sort of late pay you really, really feel this. There are moves, especially on the lake side of the building, that show a master architect with a great sense of license and belief in himself to make these free, non-orthogonal, non-rigid kind of design moves that show his own confidence in himself. You know, Pei was obviously famously like a consummate gentleman, I've never heard anyone speak an ill word of him. Always, you know, kind of the soft-spoken but diehard getting what he wants kind of architect. That's funny. I'm reading this 
book, The House That Rock Built, that's the history of that building. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pei was selected by the chair of the board of the New York Foundation of the Rock Hall, who was also the founder of Rolling Stone. And there's this thing about, well, you know, I am Pei also stood, there was a, I guess there was a, a kind of colloquialism with Pei that I am Pei could also translate to you will pay because the buildings will go over budget and so forth, which I had never heard and I thought was really funny. That's hilarious. You know, we don't have enough figures like Pei anymore. We don't have enough figures like Norman Foster anymore. Norman Foster was at COP26. He was he did a breakfast with John Kerry and mayors from around the world. You know, like these people, again, who can think so uh, precisely about design and aesthetics and material mm-hmm. logic and structural logic and then expand their world out. Pay, I don't know if you, while you were at MIT and while you were giving the family the tour, if you saw Pay's thesis from MIT. Is it in the the Roche Library? Yes, and it is worth looking up. It is much more radical than you might expect from Mm -hmm. what feels like a career of an establishment architect. So I hope a lot more is written about him over time. I, I don't think we fully understand the man. You know, I do a lot of photography, and the famous French photographer, Henri Cartier-Bresson, was mm-hmm. is someone who's very influential for me. And uh, there was a show at MoMA, you know, that was about Cartier-Bresson's early work and his the influence he both felt and had on the Surrealist movement. And Cartier-Bresson goes on to become one of the world's most sort of establishment photographers in the way that Pei is an establishment architect. Mm-hmm. But I think just a millimeter under the surface, there's a much, much more complex individual there. And I think Pei is of that same ilk. Mm-hmm. So then in terms of being able to understand someone that is different at heart than perhaps anyone else uh, of his contemporaries, you talked about reading a book in history of him, his, you talk about visiting his building and understanding it in the context of where it's located. Were there any other tools that you had at your disposal in understanding the designer and his intent in that the iteration of that building? That yeah, you're we getting dressed in the dressing area he designed in our little apartment in Kipps Bay, which I'm, of course, sure, right, which yeah. I'm sure Pei designed. I think those are just literally his apartments. Mm-hmm. A one bedroom has a foyer, It has a dressing area. Mm -hmm. It's so civilized. Mm -hmm. And there's this way in which pay defined space. So you understood that even though it was an open plan setting, there was this area that had a sense of privacy where you got dressed. And it's amazing how much we've lost this in like apartment design. But the larger point is he has a strategy for defining. In other words, it is not the Mesian kind of liquid space where, you know, space is flowing in every direction, mm-hmm. broken, undefined, infinite. Pay spaces tend to be quite finite. Mm-hmm. And they do, of course, dance with each other in this way that, you know, breaks them open and gives them fluidity, but not in a Mesian way. And in fact, it like, again, if there's any, to me, the, the predecessor of Pei is Khan, because Khan also tends to work with finite volumes of space. Mm-hmm. And so that is a big influence for us. We've thought about this issue a great deal and how much 
we're going to play the pay game versus the POW game of, again, how do we be reverent to this great architect, but irreverent in the sense that it is a different moment, a different time in a musical genre that has rapidly, rapidly evolved. The chair, the current chair of the Rock Hall, you know, when you induct Jay-Z and Todd Rundgren and LL Cool J and Carol King all yeah. at the same time, you know, people might rightfully ask, well, what is this rock and roll? What is the museum? Uh, yeah. Like rock and roll, if you define it that broadly, right? And Dave Chappelle, when he introduced Jay-Z, said, you know, it's great that Jay-Z is being inducted, but you have to understand he belongs to us. <laughs> when he said that, I realized part of what he was saying was an assertion about the fact that, you know, rock and roll had historically yeah. been too often understood as a white genre. Mm -hmm. That's what he was saying. And he was saying, like, look, to Dave Chappelle, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically saying Jay-Z is hip hop before he's rock and roll in yeah. all circumstances. And I get that. But what the current chair of the Rock Hall Foundation says is that what rock is, it is what moves the spirit of young America. And that mm -hmm. is, and it's interesting because you've chosen to use the word American in your podcast. And I'm really glad, you know, and there are people in my office who are like, spirit of young America. I mean, at this point, isn't rock and roll? Rock and roll is this international genre. How can it just mm -hmm. be the spirit of young America? And again, there's the British invasion and like, how, how can you possibly? But I do think that for this young country, it is important if we're going to hang together and be a country, which is a big question mark right now, mm -hmm. that we need cultural anchors. We need cultural definition that says this is who we are. And that doesn't mean that it's not simultaneously international. But there are things that ground us, you know, as Americans. And you know, look, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Calcutta. You always feel like the only place you're ever truly welcome is on an airplane. <laughs> you know, right? Like, you know, you show up in India. Everywhere in the world. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you show up in India with the American accent. It's like, who's this guy? You show up here. And they're like, anyway. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I certainly feel very at home with rock and roll. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's that great movie about, I think the young, I think he's Pakistani who like, and Bruce Springsteen like gets him through life. He's a, like a Londoner, you know, a young Londoner and like Bruce Springsteen, blinded by the light. That's the name of the movie. Anyway, mm -hmm. my point is just that to say that rock is about the spirit of young America, I think is critically important because what it's saying is that whether it's Jay-Z or, you know, much newer artists or much older legacy artists, that the continuum, the through line is about this way in which youth change the culture. And America is a place that has a history of the youth changing culture and demanding things of the establishment mm -hmm. uh, that creates very, very high speed evolution. And that is something that is endemic to this country, but is spreading. I mean, I think when you look at like the gay rights decision in, in the Indian courts, that's coming out of an American sense of activism that is now very alive in a country like India. And certainly the climate movement is, is all about this. Youth activism is critical. And so 
I really like this. I really like this notion that the building now has to be this channel, this conduit for the spirit of young America. And that brings into question, is it a series of finite established forms that Pei was so fond of? And does that is that really the right formal language for the spirit of young America? Mm-hmm. And that's the question mark that we are heavily into right now. I think what's so fascinating, what you've described as the this inspiration for your firm and the way that you approach projects in terms of jobs, justice, and joy is something that is so in its collection, so uniquely American, this idea that through hard work, you gain freedom and you're able to have the ability to start anew anything that you want in this country, the traditional idea of America, this idea that despite XYZ, you can pursue your dreams here, the founding ideas of our country. And this idea that America does things just a little bit differently than the rest of the world, which often is a reason for joy for a lot of people. So I feel like this, what you kind of described is these, this America in a nutshell, the America in its purest distilled form. As a set of ideas. I mean, the problem is that so many things are broken. Of course. The equal opportunity in the education system, the housing system, the healthcare system, the transit system, that's all broken. The idea that, I mean, even capitalism, pure capitalism means that you pay for your negative externalities. You pollute a river, you clean up the river, right? Mm -hmm. So the fossil fuel companies and the fossil fuel subsidies and the fossil fuel lobbyists, we don't have pure capitalism. We have a completely, completely warped form of capitalism that allows that to happen. So my point is, yes, those things that you all stated, those are things I celebrate as well. I mean, my parents came here with $32 and look it up Mm -hmm. today, right? But the thing is, is that as immigrants, especially, it's incredibly important to not get lulled into the narrative of the American dream without understanding all that's wrong with it, all it's doing to fail people instead of empower people. And so to me, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like reading about Jefferson and your mind just gets blown. You know, this this guy that was so important. He was a rapist and a slave owner and a lot of other bad things too. Right, but also the establishment of a lot of the enlightenment principles Mm -hmm. that you just espoused. And so, you know, you have to deal with this constant, constant sense of contradiction, right? And so when you say things like, this is the American Building Podcast, the Rock Hall channels the spirit of young America. You can't just hold up the flag as this rah-rah thing without acknowledging those contradictions. At the same time, we can't cede the flag to the fascists who will claim that it is theirs and only theirs Mm -hmm. and only they are patriots and so forth. So that to me is the challenge. That's the mix that we are all in. And architecture is the manifestation of that. And an architecture about a rock and roll hall of fame is really the manifestation of that. And so it's an exciting moment if you're willing to kind of grab the uncertainty of this time. Let me ask you this then, given all of the complexities, the values and the the needs that are going into this building and its renovation, how would you want IMPay to react to your renovation? If you had the opportunity opportunity to to walk in through your work when you were done. Boy, that's a tough one, you know, and it's hard. I mean, I wonder how his family will feel about it. We are trying our best 
to honor his legacy while understanding that the building, the genre of rock and roll, the times we live in have moved past that moment. You know, these things are terribly hard. You know, I was asked to speak years ago at the Sydney Opera House. And it was one of the most moving things I've ever had to do. I could barely get through the talk. I was very emotional about it. And when you go there and you realize that Jornitsen never saw the completed building and that it was completed on his behalf, and some things were absolutely brilliant, like a lot of what Overup did as the engineer was absolutely brilliant. Other things that like the local chapter of, you know, their equivalent of the AIA completed, the base of the building, really tough. These things are hard, you know. But so one of our first projects in power is the Domino Sugar Refinery. And that was not designed by a famous person, but it's a landmark. It's a heritage building. And Palimpsest, you know, I think is one of the most important things we can explore as architects today. Everything's a Palimpsest because there's layers of history everywhere. There is no tabula rasa. And this is why, of course, again, people love working out in those desert sites. But even those desert sites have no tabula rasa. There's a climate. There's indentured slaves as workers. There's a context. There's always a context. So this sense that working with a historical artifact, whether it's a landmark or a building mm -hmm. designed by a very famous architect, and how you layer, as opposed to just, again, that myth of the solo artist conjuring the object out of something to me is a first of all it's harder what i like to say is more sauce for the goose you know there's just there is no sport in just going and playing on an empty field my grandfather mm -hmm. always used to tell me that you should never play chess with someone who's worse than you and so when you're playing chess against the context of a site, a famous architect, an incredibly rich musical genre. This is what you're playing chess with. And like, that's only going to tune your mind and challenge you and try to make you better as opposed to just this thing where some shake says, build me an icon out in the desert. And is that really going <laughs> really to challenge your mind that much when there's so little pushing against you? Mm -hmm. All you have pushing against you is yourself at that moment. And that is, to me, not a terribly attractive thought. I think that's a wonderfully appropriate perspective to take to produce something that is going to be iconically beautiful, as well as respectful of the, of the legendary architect that prepared the original building. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast. If you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And please uh, rate and review on iTunes so we can reach a wider audience. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? You can hear from me the team and Michael Graves and many of our spectacular guests like Bishan on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind, and we must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Vishan and I have made donations to the Architectural League of New York, which advocates for architecture as a profession. 
I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves.